Matthew chapter 5. Well, I suppose you've noticed with the coming of spring, there is the resurgence and the resurfacing of what I want to call the, the scourge of Texas. And I'm referring to fire ants, okay? Now, I've lived in a lot of different places around the country, but I've never even heard of fire ants until I came here. You know, people kind of reference them like there's like something to be afraid of, these fire ants. Like, what? Ants? You know, I've, as a kid, I'd play with ants. I'm going to spare you all the details and stuff like that, you know, and I, they never really harmed me and stuff. That was kind of just a little amusement when you're like seven or eight years old and stuff like that. But I've heard about these fire ants, but it's one thing to just kind of hear about them. It's a whole other thing to experience them. And there's one way that you can truly experience fire ants, and that's to do a little yard work, okay? These mounds, maybe you noticed, I've got... This year, they're starting on my front curb, okay? I've got one on both sides, okay? And they are coming to come full force. There's this huge mound, and, they, and they're and kind of real busy little critters there. And, you know, when you start to do your yard work, whether you're pulling weeds, you're doing some raking, you get down there, and, and uh, my first experiences with fire ants were just plumb unpleasant, okay? I mean, what happens is, I guess they just kind of crawl up on you, and when one decides, now's the time to bite, they bite, they secrete this little odor, and that's like, it's time, it's time, everybody, and they just start biting you, and they've made their way maybe up on your arm or on your leg. When I, when I got bit on my hand that first time, I had, I discovered that I'm somewhat allergic to these things, okay? I got all the swelling, so that was on Saturday. I remember preaching at the movie theater, Hollywood movie theater. Remember those good old days, right? You know, I got popcorn and your Bible there, and my left hand's all swollen. I just kind of hung it out there, just like this whole time, because I couldn't move it. Well, I remember one time I got, they somehow made it up my leg, and my leg just like swelling. It was so bad, I didn't know if I needed to go to the hospital or ER or what, because these little critters, they, if you're new here to Texas, you're like, oh, these fire ants, I heard a little bit about them. These were not on the welcome brochure to Texas, okay? And there is a reason why. And now, I'm like, I hate these fire ants, okay? I don't, I don't like them. I want to get rid of them. And so I'm like, there's got to be a way to eradicate them, right? Or at least out of my yard. So I did some research, and they're like, no, 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 you can't get rid of them. I called an insecticide company. I'm like, hey, I got this little problem called fire ants. Can you completely get rid of them so you never have to face them? No, you can't, sir. Uh, but we do recommend our product, orthene, okay? And so I have been a big orthene user, and so you, what you do is you, you have to put that powder on there. You see, you can't just say, ants go away, okay? You can't, like kick their pile around and think that they're going to go away. The only way to get rid of them, or at least that little colony that's developing your yard, is you've got to go and kill the queen, okay? And she's buried deep in there. That is the only way that you can address your fire ant issue. You've got to go into the source, okay? And so a product like Orthing, that's what it does. Apparently these little ants, they go and they take that down the queen, and somehow she eats that, that kills it, and then that kills that little grouping there. Now, I don't know where the rest of the ants go. Do they do they go to your neighbors and try it out there? Or I don't I don't know. Are they kind of regroup and they're going to come back with a vengeance? I'm not exactly sure. But I do know this. If you're going to address fire ant issues, you got to go internal. You got to go to the source. And really, just like fire ants, the subject we're going to talk about today, sexual lust, has to be addressed at a heart issue. Oh, yeah, fire ants are unpleasant. Sexual lust, not under the control of Jesus Christ, leads to huge wreckage. If you were looking for a sweet little sermon on flowers and the joy of springtime, this is not the message. I'm just going to forewarn you, because what Jesus has to say on the issue of sexual lust, adultery, 
and divorce is absolutely countercultural. It's going to make a lot of people feel very uncomfortable. And there is a reason why. Jesus wants his people holy. He wants us to reflect his character. He wants us to know his joy in life. And that is why Jesus does heart surgery. Band-aids will not do for serious issues. And so he goes right to the heart. Now, just as we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, let me just kind of bring you up to speed here. Having proven the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. Matthew chapter four, then Jesus actually starts calling people to follow him, his disciples. He says, come, follow me. Jesus has one message. What is his message? Remember, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. I am the established king all the way going back to the genealogies of Matthew chapter one. I am calling you to repent. That doesn't mean just have a change of mind about who I am. That is to have a complete change of direction, a turning from your sin and a trusting of the king himself, Christ. And so he calls people to repent to follow him. And beginning in Matthew chapter five, he gives his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells us, you and I, who are Christ's disciples, who truly are following and knowing him as Lord, we are far more blessed than you could ever imagine. And he actually spells them out in the Beatitudes. And we've kind of looked at that. Not only are we are tremendously blessed because we know Christ, but God has you and I here for a purpose. Do you know what that is? Your purpose, my purpose, is to be light in the midst of darkness and to be salt on this earth. And in fact, he actually talks about that. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, all the way through 16. I want your light to shine. I don't want you to hide it. I want your life to be like a preservative and add flavor and to show the world what it truly means to be transformed by Jesus Christ. you got a new life. You have new love. You have new capabilities because you have my presence in your life. And so he actually tells us, I don't want you to cloud your life with the things of this world, its priorities, its uh, ideals, its values. I want you to be purely, wholly mine. And so what happens here, and Jesus goes on to actually explain, and we kind of picked this up last week, in chapter 5, verse 17, he comes to say, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to actually fulfill them. Do you see that in verse 17? I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament law and all that God required and has he pointed the way to live, nor did I come to do away with the prophets that speak of a coming Messiah. He says, I came to 100% fulfill them. And that is why Matthew, point by point, just shows the prophecies and how Christ fulfills them. I am the fulfillment. I am going to accomplish complete and utter righteousness. I will fulfill every single detail. So in chapter 5, verses 17 and 8 through 18, he says, I came to fulfill all righteousness for you. I'm going to do it. But here's where a lot of people miss the boat. Not only is Christ going to fulfill all righteousness for us, he actually wants to accomplish all righteousness through his people. So you and I, when we become a Christian, we are united with Christ And his positional righteousness, the fact that he has actually always done everything right, he's fulfilled all God's moral demands, all of his righteousness is actually transferred onto our account. And all of our sin, wickedness, vileness, that is actually transferred onto Christ, who then pays that penalty for all of that wicked sin in our place. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the essence of the gospel message. Christ came to fulfill, and he has, and his offer of forgiveness, his life, his righteousness, is for anyone who will trust him. And for all of us who have put our trust in Christ, he intends to fulfill righteousness in our life. He wants us to live upright, moral, God-honoring, God-fearing, God-loving lives. And if that is going to be the reality, do you know what? He's got to do heart surgery. He's got to go deep. And so that's what he does. And beginning in chapter 5, verse 21, he goes through six different illustrations where he's going to establish what right living really looks like. And there's a pattern that you can see. This is what Jesus does. You'll see it here today, twice. First, he's going to state the commandment of the law. You've heard the ancient said, this is what was told to you. The prophets wrote this. And then he's going to give the intent. He's going to show the intent of what God had behind that commandment. And then it solidifies as a result of us seeing how absolutely failing, failing we are in this. It shows us and solidifies our need for Christ, for his righteousness and for his divine enablement. And so because God wants us to experience the fullness of life in Christ, you know what he's going to do? He's going to address heart issues. We saw this last time, beginning in verse 21, where he says, I don't want you living your life destroying others. It goes way beyond murder. It deals with issues like heart and calling people idiots and fools and morons. There's a heart issue. I want my people to reflect my character and my love. And so he addressed that in chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. Pretty heavy duty. No one came away going, whew, well, at least I've never struggled with being angry with anybody or said anything like that. No, we all found ourselves clinging to Christ. If you thought that last week was like, whew, that was somewhat unsettling, what Jesus has to say next will make you unraveled. Jesus is going to address the heart issues that can move us to adultery. Look at what he says, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Familiar with that? Yeah, I think we are. Seventh commandment. In fact, used to be in our schools. We used to have it kind of placed all over there. Little school that I went to in Montana, little brick school. We had the Ten Commandments up there. Didn't understand them fully, but they were there. Of course, we don't do that anyway, but you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Seventh one is, do not commit adultery. You know who this, knew this one real well? The Jewish people. Okay? They, they knew, okay, we are not supposed to have sexual intercourse with anybody but our wife. Got that. Check. But Jesus says, you know what? It goes far beyond that. But I say to you, you see, when Jesus says, but I say to you, he is actually showing you that he speaks with divine authority. This is what God's word said. I'm God. Listen to what I have to say about the true divine intent behind this. But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay. A lot of folks say, didn't commit adultery? Good. A lot of Jews would say that. Jesus says, let me tell you, there's a heart issue. 
If you so much as have a longing, lustful desire for another person that is not your spouse, that, my friend, shows that you're an adulterer of the heart that has to be dealt with and addressed. I want my people pure. God doesn't just want us looking nice and shiny on a Sunday morning, all dressed up and kind of singing the right songs and saying the right phrases. He wants purity of heart. God is not interested in that we're just monogamous. He wants us fully dedicated, devoted, and experiencing his love. He says, if you are lusting after some other person, some woman, you man, you're an adulterer. Let me tell you why God takes adultery, whether it's the physical act or it's lusting in our hearts so seriously. You see, marriage is to be a picture of God's covenant love with his people. You saw that with the people of Israel. You certainly see that in the New Testament where Christ is the head. Okay, he's the bridegroom and we, the church, the believers in Christ, we're the bride. He wants marriages to be a picture of his love for his people. It is a covenant. There is a desire. There is a joy in being in the presence. Hence, the Old Testament prophets are saying, you go on and clamoring after all these other false gods, flirting with the, the gods of the Canaanites. That is, that is wickedness and adultery. And God will not have it. In fact, he's going to bring judgment upon you. And so he's saying here, listen, adultery is huge. You see, God desires for his people to reflect his character both in their lives individually and in our relationships. And if you are lusting for other people, you are violating everything I'm intending to do in your life. You see, a person that lusts, it's not that you, you can appreciate beauty. See a beautiful person, you can identify, and wow, that person's a beautiful person. Lust is, though, when you go and you lock on and you're like, I want that person. That person's my possession. And it, it goes to the point where it's like, If I could, I would. If I could get away with this, I would. And so lust, what it does is it just kind of works in one's mind, and all of a sudden it goes, it accelerates at an amazing pace because your mind is faster than any computer. And it goes and takes places, takes you places that you never thought you would ever go, but you develop patterns of doing this. And he says, if you look upon a woman to lust for her, you are committing Adultery. By the way, what was the uh, penalty for adultery in the Old Testament? What did God say? That's all right. Deuteronomy 22, 22. You commit adultery, you die. You just put them to death. I want no sin in my camp. And so it's not just that you can appreciate beauty, but it goes way beyond that. What lust is, lust is antithetical to love. Lust is to dehumanize another person and to just treat them as a sexual object. And so this is what happens. There's many people that just walk around and they just are evaluating people based on what their sexual value in their mind. They see them as merely a means to their own selfish, self-gratifying ends, whether they can do the act or not. And Jesus says, I don't want that for my people. To do that is, is committing adultery with her. Love... On the other hand, what is love? Love is to seek and do the very best interest for another person. It's the opposite of selfishness. Lust is selfish, self-gratifying. Love, you know what love is? 
Love is to want what is very best for that person. Love is to want the very best for that person's marriage, for their life. It's not trying to control, demean, dehumanize. It is looking to to do the very best for that other person. Love and its manifest companion, adultery, does this. It seeks sex apart from honor, responsibility, and apart from God. It, It wants sexual fantasy with no strings attached. And by the way, you young single female, be real careful about some guy who's all just passionate in the moment. He wants something to rob you of something because he doesn't want any responsibility for what he's just about trying to do to you. Jesus says, you're lusting like that. You are committing adultery. Let me just tell you how you can move out of that if you're in that situation. See people as people and not things. In fact, see them as family members. Let me give you a great text. This could put you on the road to health, high, the highway of healing. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy. By the way, Timothy the pastor, he says, let me tell you how you treat people. He says, the older men, you treat them as fathers. And then he says, the younger men, you treat them as brothers. And the older women, treat them as mothers. And the younger women, he says, Treat them as sisters, and then he puts this little caveat on there, with all purity. Start seeing people like you see people in your family. Don't just turn them into some sort of object object for your self-gratifying mental pleasure to fulfill some sort of lust that you got on there. See people as people. See them in a family context. Come to a point where you can absolutely enjoy and appreciate people of both sexes. Not trying to work some sort of wicked, conniving scheme in your mind. You've come to a point where you're secure in your identity with Christ. God's Spirit is alive in your heart, and you can actually love and appreciate and enjoy people. People who have lust that are just, it's out, just rampant, it's outside of anything of God's control, so they think. They don't enjoy people, they tolerate people, and they abuse people. In their minds, and if they could, they'd do it with their actions. Well, now how, how serious is Jesus about this lust issue? He probably realizes that, uh, you know, we, we all have struggles there. No one's going to stand up like, gee, Grant, I have no idea what you're talking about today. <laughs> right? We're like, whoa, how did God know? He knows. How serious is he on this issue? Well, you don't have to guess. He actually writes it out. Look at verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand, verse 30, makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Whoa. Whoa, what's going on here? Well, now, if you're thinking like, "Uh oh, there goes my right eye and my right hand. What Jesus is using, he's using a literary device called hyperbole. Okay, you say something in a dramatic fashion for a dramatic effect. What Jesus is driving at is that 
you don't spare any lengths to deal with this kind of sin issue. This isn't something to be just kind of tolerated. This is something that you've got to go after with a vengeance. It has to be addressed at a hard issue. It's, there's a reason why we're like, oh, man, look at, I noticed all the guys in our church don't have right eyes and right hands, okay? I mean, with, think about it. Would that really address the issue of lust? No, you just have left eye lusting people, right? Okay, why? Because what? It is a heart issue. The heart has to be addressed. But what Jesus is saying is that you have got to take radical measures to address the sin issues in your heart. He says it would be better for you to actually have your right eye removed or your right hand removed, which this, the eye is kind of where you're getting this information. Hand would be something that you would use that information with. He says it'd be better to have those thrown off than for you and your whole body to end up in hell. Remember what that was from last week? The word Gehenna. Remember from the southwest Jerusalem, right off the side, off the gates, the southwest Jerusalem, they had that burning garbage dump. They're always burning their garbage. They execute criminals, the Romans did. They just take those carcasses, those bodies, whoosh, they throw it into Gehenna, the burning garbage dump. And the Jews then just started associating this burning with hell, and pretty soon it just became synonymous for hell. You don't want to be in hell. Can your lust send you to hell? It can. It can. Apart from the radical grace of God in your life and you experiencing Christ and salvation, your lust is going to lead you there, take you by the hand, and it will destroy you. It is, if you do not know Christ, and this area is running rampant in your life, I know that you're just a shell of, your, of a being. You live with such inner turmoil, you have no integrity, you have no peace, you can't look people in the eye, you look in the mirror sometimes, you don't even know who you are. Because this is ripping you up and tearing you up. And this is a serious issue in our culture. Let me just tell you where we're at. Modern day America. In Time Magazine in 2009, they ran a a magazine article called Adultery 2.0. And in this article, they talked about this personal's website. And it's designated to facilitate extramarital affairs. You can log on and you can have immediate access the thousands of men and women who are just willing to kick aside their vows that they've made for better, for worse. I'm always going to be with you. They'll kick those aside for a no strings attached tryst. And they actually even have that where apparently on these cell phone versions where there can be no virtual trail. You can't actually track this on your work computer or your home computer. And this place, I mean, OK, they start this site in 2008. By 2009, they had already doubled their membership. They had over 4 million people that were using and accessing their site. In one month, okay, in June 2009, when they're writing this, they had 679,000 men or women use this site. See, it's in the heart of man. It's interesting, in the article, the CEO of the site, this guy by the name of Noel Berderman, he shrugs off any criticism when he when he's being confronted with this. And he says, you know what? Quote, we're just a platform. No website or 30-second ad is going to convince anyone to cheat. People cheat because their lives aren't working for them. Humans aren't meant to be monogamous. So he thinks. Now, I thought this was really good. So they asked Noel, who is a married man, by the way, how would you like to be married to him? How was work today, honey? Oh, I destroyed 700,000 marriages this month. He was asked... 
How would you respond if your wife used your site? You want his words? I would be devastated. Right now, we are experiencing our culture. We are experiencing its demise and its unraveling. Pornography has taken its hold in America and it is ripping us to shreds. It is destroying men. There is a reason why we don't have men. It's the reason why Wall Street Journal writes an article a couple of weeks ago like, where are the men? You know where they're at? They are being ravaged by this sexual lust, being quote unquote satisfied or at least attempted to satisfied, but in actuality is just fueling the fire by pornography. In December 2009, Family Research Council did this new study, and they were looking at the effects of pornography on people's lives and their relationships. And as you might imagine, they found out what? It leads to terrible effects. In that particular article, the Citing American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, the study noted that 56% of divorce cases involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And 68% of divorces uh, involve one spouse conducting an affair with someone they met over the Internet. And let me just tell you what pornography does. Pornography, in a man's mind, it triggers these hormonal, neurological, neurochemical effects. And it's, it's like they respond to a sexual stimulus, and this effect is t- taking place in their mind. And they develop patterns of engaging it. The more they engage it, it's like it develops this crevice. It is like a chemically induced crevice that becomes a canyon in a man's life. And it becomes like an M.O. And it just it, is, it affects everything in their being. And when they're talking about this, uh, the effects of this, what it does in marriages, they basically said this. As pornography rates rise in terms of its production and consumption, marriage rates drop. Why? Because it is a counterfeit of Satan of intimacy. It makes you think that you can get away with this. Sin always has short-term pleasures, but it never, never broadcasts its long-term, sometimes lifetime, in some people's case, eternal lifetime devastation. Not only does it destroy a person from the inside out, one of the things it does, it corrodes their conscience. If you're a person involved in pornography, what your conscience, your little warning mechanism that goes off like, you shouldn't be doing this. Don't. No. Stop. You just keep plowing ahead. You go to that next website. You pick up that next magazine. What happens is you make your conscience where it is devoid of true response. You've silenced it. To use a biblical term, you've cauterized it. You've cauterized your conscience. You've seared it. And it, this pornography, let me just tell you, it promotes great distrust between husbands and wives. And furthermore, it debases untold thousands of young women. And Jesus says, not in my people. How serious am I? It'd really be better for you to cut your eye out, cut your hand off. I'm that serious. We have got to address the heart issue. Humanism says lusting after people and sex outside of marriage. Hey, just go with the flow, man. That's just how we're wired. Isn't life about your satisfaction and entertainment about as much as you can get out of it? That's what humanism says. Live life apart from God. And if you need some sort of little crutch called religion, then you take God on your terms the way you want him. Jesus as you desire him. No. You know what God has to say? 
God is real serious about you messing around with another man's wife or another man, another wife's husband. In fact, you might want to remember this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Whether you're married or single, young or old, let marriage be held in honor among all. He says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. I'm not giving passes on this, he says. I'm going to bring it to judgment. I will judge these things. How bad is this? That's terrible. Let me give you some statistics. By the way, if you think like, hmm, this is just a male problem. Okay? Wrong. This is a growing female problem. When I was doing some research on this, I read this statistic. I had to sit back and go, whoa, what are we dealing with? Today's Christian Woman has, is an online newsletter. They, um, this is a little bit old, 2003, late 2003, when they did this little survey among their readers, okay? Namely females, Christian females probably, right? They wanted to find out how many of them are intentionally accessing Internet pornography. Today's Christian Woman. Ready? 34% of the people those women that responded to that said, I am. And not only does it come in the form of Internet pornography, there's a whole section of genre of literature written for women meant to entice them. It's cleverly written. And it takes them and develops all these romantic ideas of relationship that are far flung from reality. And then it just dives in deep with sexual graphic content taking people's minds, mainly these women's minds, places they never should go, and they begin living in fantasy land, and no one compares. This is not only a male issue, this is a female issue. You know how in America, every 39 minutes, there's a new pornography movie made. Do you know that? Do you know how much is spent each second on pornography? I, I want you to grasp the culture and the chaos we're living in. Every second... $380 $380 is spent on pornography. You see, there is a whole marketing scheme that appeals to sexuality. You see it in our, in our advertisements on TV. And it, it not only wants your attention, but more important, it wants your money. Drives this, pulls you in. I had heard that there is more spent on, the, on pornography than there is on all professional sports combined in America. Think about that. You know uh, the percentage of porn websites that are produced in America? 89%. We are a seething cauldron of destruction. American Academy of Pediatrics in 2006, they did a study on sexual activity among young people based on their exposure to sexual activity in the media, TV, magazines, things they're pulling up on the Internet. There's been a lot done on violence, okay? And as you'd expect, I mean... Uh, you know, I think if they watch a lot of violent stuff, they'll become more violent. Let's do a big, huge test on a bunch of kids, see if that happens. Sure enough, they found that. Well, guess what? They found the same thing with sexual content. You show a lot of sexual content, wherever they're picking it up, 
And those kids pick up that behavior. This article went on in the, uh, the report that they had is that what happens is the media becomes like the sexual super peer in that person's life. If they don't have a mom and dad, they don't got, have a pastor or somebody discipling or mentoring them or a teacher or coach that truly walks with God and investing in their life on a moral basis, then what happens is media takes over as the peer and they channel them into a whole new morality, which looks a lot like death. You are setting these, we are setting up a generation of kids for failure because they think this is living and we're alive. It's the 60s revisited, only we're going to do it with steroids. And what happens is they will never truly experience intimacy because they've just got erosion in their head and in their mind and in their heart. And the whole idea of trusting someone is going to be so far and foreign from their mind, they, they, they could never experience it. What Jesus has to say is, you know, we kind of need to be like a raccoon or a coyote or a wolf. That gets into a trap. Ever seen one of those traps? You got those things set and then clamps down. You know what an animal like that will do when it's clamped? You got a trap on it? It, That's exactly right. It will literally gnaw its paw off to get out of the trap. Must want to get out. Must want to live, huh? Absolutely. Do you really want to live? You got a trap on your leg that's pulling you down to the very depths of hell itself? Get out. Cut it out. Address it. Deal with it. You know, can a man take fire in his bosom and not have his clothes be burned? You can't. So what do we do? I mean, it's everywhere. How do we deal with temptation? Let me tell you. You and I, we need to be so radically satisfied with Jesus Christ, cultivating this relationship, seeking him, taking your relationship with Christ out of the superficial. And I'll get to it when I'm convenient to. He is life and breath for me. I love him. I'll spend time with him. I'm going to learn how to pray. You cultivate a rich relationship with Christ because the only way you will ever escape out of this is to have Christ working in you. And by the way, he is in the business of transformation. God takes broken pieces and he puts them together. And so it's kind of like you find in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Put on Christ. Enjoy him. Pray. Read. Think about your identity with Christ, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Put him on and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Let me give you a great promise in the Bible. You might want to write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God promises that for every temptation that you and I face, there will be a way of escape. He says, no temptation is overtaking you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful. You can count on him. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There is always a way out. Whether you turn the channel, turn it off, take, turn the computer off, get away, leave the room, walk out of the store. You always have a way of escape. All you have to do is say, God, help me. And he'll show you. He'll put it in your mind. The question is, will you respond to the way of escape? You know, it's one thing when your house is on fire 
And to see the window and go, boy, you know, I could probably get out right there. But it's really hot. My hair is starting to singe. Go the way of escape because it's been brought to you by God himself. See, what we need is God's protection in our life. Let me give you just a real simple uh, strategy to follow. You need, by the way, you need an action plan before the issue hits. Right? This would be a really good time to establish your action plan. Don't think like, well, you know, in the heat of the moment, I'm going to come up and I'm going to do the right thing. Probably not. You're probably going to end up a statistic. So have an action plan before it hits. Let me give you a simple one. First of all, realize when you're being tempted. Identify the enticement and call it what it is. Literally, you could even say, whoa, wait a second. Oh, I'm being tempted right here. Call it what it is so you know what you're dealing with, okay? It'll take it out of, it's kind of got this like elusive little fog that it puts over you. Just call it what it is right there. That'll sober you up and help you start seeing clearly what the situation is. And then reject it. You got to reject the enticement. You got to see that is a false promise. It looks like, oh, this would be a lot of fun. Ooh, wow. There's something inside of it that's just clamoring after that. No. Call it what it is. It is a lie. That isn't going to be fun. You might get some short term pleasure, but it's going to have long term negative implications for your life. You want that? It is probably really good. For you to spend some time with someone who's been destroyed by sexual lust and adultery. See him laying on the floor, weeping uncontrollably. See that woman crying because she can't control herself anymore. The effects of our sin are great. Just imagine the heart of God. Really reject it. Say no way. Stay out of certain places. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Hey. It's kind of like if you're an alcoholic, don't go show up at a bar and like show people how strong I am. That's, that's not strong. That's stupid. Don't do that. You got lust issues running out of control. You stay away from the things that are going to feed that fire. OK. And by the way, as a single person with the opposite sex, it's not how close you can get to the line without sinning. Really, it's what? How far you can get away from it. Be holy. By the way. If you want intimacy. Purity precedes intimacy. Purity precedes intimacy. And then, not only you realize that you're facing, you reject it, but you redirect. Focus back on Christ. Fix your eyes or thoughts or your heart or your imagination on anything noble. In fact, you want a good verse on that? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. There are so many wonderful things that God has given us. Just a plethora. Pick them. Anything. God, his creation, what he's done, your family. Fix your eyes on things that are truly noble and good. You're facing, if you're facing a tempting situation, try this. Very helpful. Pray for the purity of that person. It'll just do wonders. You pray for the purity of that person and then pray for the purity of yourself. God help me. Pray for your marriage. Pray for that person's marriage or their future marriage. Be a person of prayer. Find your strength in God 
and you will overcome. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter two, verse twenty five says, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment apart from him? You cannot have enjoyment apart from God. That's why he says, come to me. You know, it's kind of like your cell phone. Okay, lust has a way of calling at just some of the most ridiculous times. That doesn't mean you have to answer it. Silence it. And if you do, you know what you need to do? You need to put it down fast and you need to apologize quick. Okay? You do not have to respond to it, though. What you need to do is you need to mount a a violent attack when you're under attack and set your mind on Christ. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I don't want you living with adultery physically, emotionally, mentally, because it has a dire negative effect upon you spiritually. And you're my people. Come to me. I will help you. Well, on that note of thinking about adultery, Jesus moves right into this next one here. Not only does he want to address the heart issues that can move us to adultery, but he wants to address the heart issues that can move us to divorce. He goes on in verse 31, same pattern. He says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay. And they'll be very familiar with this. This comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where God seeks to regulate all these massive amounts of divorces that were taking place for whatever reason. Okay. Now, they had twisted it. They had twisted it and said, if they, if you can send your wife away for whatever reason, okay, and you can just go ahead and marry someone else. But Jesus says, let me tell you what I intend about marriage. I intend marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Verse 32, he says, but I said you, I am the authority, he says, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now Jesus is saying, listen, my standards are far from yours and certainly very far from the world's. Now, he isn't commanding divorce. What he's trying to do is regulate it. Now, this is, there's a lot that's going on here, and I'm going to try to paint this picture for you briefly here. When, when God gave to Moses this regulation, it's kind of like case law of how to regulate all these divorces, they were pretty much divorcing their wives. Women weren't necessarily in a position to do so, but men could divorce their wives, and they were doing it for any frivolous reason. Okay, and so it said if you could find any, if there was found any indecency in her, okay, you could divorce your wife. Now, obviously that indecency wasn't adultery, because in 22, 22, what? Deuteronomy 22, 22, he said, adultery, death. So it had the idea of something sexually impure that wasn't necessarily adultery. It could be something vile, maybe something immoral, incest. That there was something sexually deviant, that would be the only reason why you would be able to divorce her. Well, they had actually come up with some great schemes of how to get around this. In the time of Jesus, there were some schools of thought. Let me tell you how they did this. Uh, The most conservative school was called the School of Shammai. And basically, he said, you know, you could only divorce your wife if you found some sort of unchastity to her. So uh, so if anything short of adultery, but some sort of immorality, homosexual experience, something like that, uh, incest, you could divorce your wife. That was the conservative school. But then you have, of course, you got the liberal school and they had this guy by the name of Hillel, this rabbi scholar here. And he said, you know, indecency would mean that 
you could, if she spoiled a dish, you could divorce her. So literally, he was saying, you know, if she's burning the meals, you can break up the marriage. Okay? And so if you didn't like, you know, I don't really like the Shammai one, but this Hillel sounds pretty good, you know. That gives me a lot of latitude. And one of Hillel's disciples, a guy by the name of Rabbi Akaba from the liberal camp, he just basically said, listen, if you can find anyone fairer than your wife, she's indecent, you go ahead, dump her, divorce her, you go get a new model. And basically what they had established is serial legal adultery. Now, in the, in the Eastern culture, they would just say, if you want to divorce your wife, they'd just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. You say it three times, she was released. Now, God said, we need to protect this woman. And so you're going to give her a certificate that says that she's released, and she could only be released under these terms. Now, this is the scenario that Jesus is addressing. Okay? He says, I'm going to take you on on your whole idea of divorce. He says, he says I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity. The, the Greek word there is porneia. It's where we actually get our word pornography. It's anything sexually immoral. He says, you make her commit adultery. Now, what would take place is that these guys were divorcing their wives for pretty much any reason. And Jesus says, no way. What you're doing is blatantly sinful. And he says, what's going to happen is these women, some would go back to their homes and live in shame. But many of them would would have to get married again. And and they had to have some means of, of staying alive. Some of these women were seemingly forced into prostitution because they had no other means of survival. You give her a certificate that shows that she was let go by you. And what Jesus is saying here is that you, the man who's just chunking his wife whenever you just don't like her, he says, notice, I want you to see what the text says. You make her commit adultery. You're the one who's guilty before me. You are making her do this. And he says, and whoever marries a divorced woman, and that's the, the only exception to that is in the case of adultery. If there's been adultery that's taking place, Okay, a person could viably, legally, scripturally be married. But if you marry someone who's divorced without that kind of issue in her life, she was just let go by another husband because he found someone that could cook better or he liked her better. You're marrying a divorced woman like that. You're committing adultery. You have totally twisted God's word for your own evil and vile purposes. And so what he's doing here is he's showing you. Your sin, you're allowing your rampant sin is creating great havoc in the lives of people. And I will not have it. I'm going to bring it to judgment. Now, if you're now, this opens up some pretty serious issues. If you find yourself or like, whoa, well, I was divorced and then I'm remarried. Maybe that's happened to you a couple times or something like that. What am I? Whoa. Do I mean, do I need to now divorce again? No, if, if you've come together and you're married you're married by God's grace. Let's make this work. What he's trying to do is say among my people, this should be absolutely different. There's only one reason he says, and that's in the case of Pornea and, and um, chastity. 
Adultery would be about the only reason. Now, he's not trying to give you an exhaustive list. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, he talks about that if you've been abandoned by an unbelieving one, they simply will not repent and they'll not reconcile. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Okay, but God has called us to peace. But one thing he wants among his people is to have a high view of God and a high view of marriage. And what does it look like in the United States? Well, right now, you need to know this. America tops the list of all nations with the countries with the most divorces. Now, it's hard to get a real hard figure of where we're at right now. But the divorce rate in America for first time marriages is 41 to 50 percent. So one out of two marriages that you're going to go to this spring are going to make it. Statistics. And by the way, there doesn't seem to be any discernible difference between Christians or non-Christians. Why? Because we've adopted the ways of the world. Second marriages, statistic for making, uh, having a divorce, 60 to 67 percent. Well, how about the third time as a charm? Divorce rate, third marriage, 73 to 74 percent of them don't make it. Now, the, according to statistics, since 2008, there's actually been a drop. Do you know why? There's a drop in divorces because people now are just what? Young people are just, let's just live together. Okay? And if you live together prior to marriage, that is a, you are setting yourself up for a statistical uh, disaster in terms of that you're most likely going to get divorced. So we have all these people living together and it ain't working. And what's happening is we have the erosion of a culture. And let me tell you something else that's on the rise. It's called virtual infidelity. I was reading about this at... Um, Wall Street Journal ran some articles on this in 2007. And there's, there's these games, quote-unquote games. Bad name. But, like, for instance, there's this game called Second Life. And it's a well-chronicled digital fantasy land where you have millions and millions of people. At the time of the Wall Street Journal article, they had, on this just one game, they had 8 million registered residents. And these folks, you take on a whole new persona, and you date people, you go to you know, jobs, you attend concerts, you date people, you can actually get married. You sink money into this game, you buy gifts for this virtual person. And so you have people even living in different countries who are dating each other. They may at the same time be literally married to someone else, but they're living in this second life. In this article, they interviewed this one couple, this one woman whose husband has now married in the game some woman in Canada she writes, the other life is so wonderful, it's better than real life. I mean, she, yeah, nobody gets fat, nobody gets gray, and the person that's left can't compete with that. And so what we have is the rise of people. Not only have widespread adultery going on and divorce just because you don't like them. We got all sorts of virtual, virtual infidelity taking place. That may be the way of the world. That may be the chaos and the craziness of our culture. But, friends... It's not for us. We're God's people. And we need the Lord. You know, when you and I come face to face with God's word, with Jesus' statement, there's a reason why I hear why it's very sober. There's tears in people's eyes. And some folks have got their head down. Do you know why? Because not a single one of us is unscathed by what Jesus had to say. And what do we do? Should we just go on sinning? Should we uh, just wallow in despair and self-pity and depravity? Do we just forget that God's going to bring all this to judgment? No. You know what we do? We call out to Jesus 
What should we do? We come to Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's absolute moral law. We come to him who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We come like the end of the sermon. He says, build your life on me. Come to me. I'll give you life. I will make you new. You will withstand the storms of the times of the culture and the chaos around you and even in you. But you got to build your life on me. Let me let me just have you hear from God. He says in Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. I'll cleanse you. I'll make you new. But come to me. Let me give you an amazing passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Christ coming, his incarnation, makes this possible. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, speaking of Christ, look what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near, therefore, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see that? God will cleanse you and me. Our conscience can be made new again. Our bodies, though we have exposed them to all sorts of vileness, guess what? In Christ, you can be cleansed. You can be made new. I'll tell you what, is that not good news for hurting, hopeless, broken hearts? The answer, my friends, is our deep, abiding relationship with Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See what we need. We need a lofty view of God. Of marriage. Of our mates. Of his word. And you know how you and I truly live? We truly live when we really know Christ as our Lord. He's our life. He's our forgiveness. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who's atoned us for us. He's the one who's regenerated us. And he's the one who is transforming us. And we find life when we find life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you know all about our hearts. That's why you sent your son not only to pay the penalty for the sin in our hearts and in our lives, but to address the issues we find there. So, Lord, all of us right now perhaps come with heaviness of heart. And that we have hope because we have Christ. If there is someone here today who has never truly put their faith in him, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, you obviously know all about my sin. And I just lay it before you. And I turn from the wickedness of my ways and I trust Jesus, the Savior, the one who died on the cross in my place. And I believe. And Lord, I want to experience the new life that is found in him. Lord, for all of us, Lord, keep us from the evil one. Help us to go through the door of escape when we face temptation. And Lord, would you create in us a deep, abiding fellowship with you that our hearts might be pure with yours and that we would radiate your love and treat people as people the way you've intended. For Lord, we desire to bring you great glory with our lives. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.